0: Providing timely, relevant content to providers who care for children. Welcome to Pediatrics in Practice, presented by Children's Mercy Kansas City. Here's Dr. Michael Smith.
1: So our topic today is hemophilia, the new treatments, and an interesting new study conducted out of Children's Mercy Hospital. So my guest is Dr. Shannon Carpenter. She is the section chief of hemophilia and the director of the Kansas City Hemophilia Treatment Center. Dr. Carpenter, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: You know, I think what would be nice, Dr. Carpenter, if we started with a nice overview, a review for a lot of the practitioners that listen to this show uh, about hemophilia, the different types, how, you know, it's been treated in the past, just kind of give us a nice refresher.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. Hemophilia is um, a bleeding disorder, and it is due to the lack of clotting factor within the blood. The most common type of hemophilia is hemophilia A, which is due to a lack of clotting factor eight. Um, But there's hemophilia B, which is due to a lack of clotting factor nine. And there are rare bleeding disorders that aren't called hemophilia, but um, fall under the hemophilia treatment center that are missing other factors uh, within their blood. Uh, We take care of all bleeding disorders with our hemophilia treatment center, and we cover um, not just Kansas City. uh, We also cover all of the state of Kansas and we cover uh down all the way to arkansas half of missouri and up to nebraska and iowa we have about 900 patients with bleeding disorders that we take care of and uh we actually do outreach clinics to a number of different places around around the area but our our goal is to um have patients be uh, have healthy lives patients with hemophilia have an increased risk of bleeding I'm going to specifically focus on hemophilia A here for a moment and hemophilia B. Um, There's a stratification of severity with hemophilia A and B where patients who have less than 1% of the clotting factor in their blood have severe disease. And those patients are apt to have spontaneous bleeding into their joints or muscles that can be very crippling. Uh, And so our treatment for those patients is to give them the factor back and to do it um, ideally, prophylactically to prevent bleeding, which means infusing factor into the vein uh, as many as uh, as often as every three days, or even every other day, or every day for some patients. Which is obviously a very um, labor intensive thing sure. for a family with a small child. So our job as a comprehensive hemophilia treatment center is to ease the burden of that uh, that treatment and to make sure that patients have access to comprehensive care that uh, allows them to have the best. Life and the best outcomes because those joint bleeding episodes can lead to um, joint contractures and actually uh, cripple patients. And that's what used to happen before right. we learned that it's better to be prophylactic in terms of our treatment.
1: So, when, when uh, you talk, one quick question when you talk about the injection sure. of, the, of the missing factor, what, is, there, is mm-hmm. there issues with the immune response to that? Um, is, how, how well does
0: that actually work? Well, it works great, um, but unfortunately, uh, about 20 to 30% of patients with severe hemophilia A will develop what we call an inhibitor, and that inhibitor is an antibody because their body doesn't have factor VIII, um, and so they see that as a foreign agent, and so that antibody causes the factor that we infuse to not work as well. For those patients, um, we do have some bypassing medications that can help them Keep from bleeding. Um, well, we've had some uh, major advances on that in the recent past, but we have. Uh, but it, they don't work. For many cases, they don't work as well, or they may have more bleeding, or they have to be given more frequently. So best to not have an inhibitor. Um, and then if you do get one, uh, the treatment would be to try to eradicate that hip inhibitor with large doses of factor regularly, to drive that inhibitor down and cause what we call tolerance. But of course, it's a big deal to get an inhibitor. And it usually happens in the first 50 exposure days or the first 50 times they've gotten that medication. And so it tends to happen in young children. Uh, and so mm. you have a small child who gets now an inhibitor and, and needs a, a much more intensive treatment in order to get that to go away.
1: Yeah. So so this idea of tolerance and, and trying to, to, to break that immune response, bring down that antibody, how well does that actually work? And Are are we looking? Are are there some new treatments on the horizon so that we can even avoid all this altogether?
0: Um, Yeah. So it usually works. We we tend to quote about sixty percent of the time. Probably that's probably about right in doing that. um, What we call immune tolerance therapy. Um, We do have a new medication that was recently approved for children and, and adults with hemophilia A and inhibitors uh that is called heme libra. Um and that medication is is a very interesting scientifically medication because it is not a factor but it takes the place of factor eight in clotting. So it's kind of a what we think of as a factor eight mimetic. So it is an antibody that is doesn't attack anything within the person's body. So you you think about a monoclonal antibody, a lot of times you think it's going to go after something in the in the recipient's mm, yeah. body. But that's not the case here. In this case, what it's doing is it actually um takes the place of factor eight in coagulation and acts like it. Um and what we found is that medicine has been very successful for the treatment of bleeding uh and stopped bleeding in many of our patients with hemophilia inhibitors. So hemophilia A. We can't use it for hemophilia B. It doesn't work because factor nine is what's missing there and this takes the place of factor eight. But there are um there are many patients who we have on a, on this new medication that were struggling with their inhibitors or they were in that that group that where the immune tolerance therapy didn't work um who now are doing very well with much less bleeding on this new medication
1: yeah that's amazing that you're you're mimicking one of the factors in this very complicated cascade of forming a clot i mean that's that's yeah. pretty awesome sounding it pretty amazing actually it is. yeah,
0: I like to say I like when I try to you know teach some of the fellows and such about it, I say it's really sci-fi cool. I mean, it really Yeah.
1: It's,
0: uh, um, when, when this was first announced at one of the, um, meetings, when it was first brought out as this is something people were working on, it it created quite a buzz, as you can imagine. And and we're thankful that it turned out to be a, a relatively safe product. Um, and, but it's, uh, it certainly, uh, got, got our attention really quickly just from the fact that it's such a novel and, and, um, creative way to attack this problem.
1: Yeah. It what 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 boggles my mind with it, you know, this the whole clotting cascade is is enzymatically driven, it's, you know, mm-hmm. a biochemical reaction and there's lots of things that are going on there. So this this antibody that you're using has to match perfectly right in in its chemical composition and its function i mean that's pretty amazing science and that is really cool um
0: it is you... and what's what's really cool about it is it doesn't actually look like factor eight at all it actually See, now that's even more interesting looks like an antibody <laughs> right it, it just has the appropriate binding sites to to do that there's even more interesting things coming down the pike where um where instead of trying to turn on the on switch for clotting, which is what we've been doing by giving factor, there's uh, an effort to then turn off the off switch for clotting and so to go after some of the natural oh, anticoagulants it, yeah, the inhibitors, like right. antithrombin okay. mm-hmm, yeah. and try to reduce them to allow patients to restore that clotting balance for patients what? who right now have, you know, in, in contrast, too much of them.
1: Yeah, but that's interesting too, right? Because you there there you have to have a control mechanism as well, right? So if you're starting to turn off the the anti clot um, compounds, how do you control? Like how how do you start to break down the clot? I mean, how how do you control that then? I mean, that's that that that's, uh, seems to be a problem with those.
0: So that's that's a concern, and they're still in they're still in clinical trials. Um, but it's finding I think that sweet spot where coagulation balance yeah, is. Yeah restored. So wow. right now, if you think of um clotting as a balance of uh, scales with bleeding on one side of the scales and clotting on the other side of the scales, right now, hemophilia patients, they're far, far weighted to the bleeding side. So to restore that balance, to take away some of those inhibitors, yeah. you have to get it so that those are now equally balanced without tipping it too far toward the clotting side. Yeah. And of course, you know, people aren't static Systems, right? We get sick. We have surgery,
1: and all um, that can change, right? (laughs)
0: Trauma, and and so those things change that balance um, Uh sometimes unpredictably. So those those clinical trials are really important, and um, we uh, are anxiously awaiting to see what comes of those. Um, But we're very hopeful that they will be positive outcomes because we do think that this allows us. Um, more options for treating patients yeah. that we haven't had in the past.
1: Well, you know, in these kind of clinical trials, you know, because hemophilia, when you look at the total population, is not affecting too many people. But, like, how 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 do you build confidence in these clinical trials when maybe maybe your the number of subjects is a little lower than what you what you would want?
0: So that's an area that is something that we're actually working on with the NIH right now to try to think about how we um, are creative in designing. Um, trials for hemophilia because it is a rare patient population. Um, In some cases, we have to power trials a little differently to ensure that we're um, getting the appropriate information. But um, there are some more um, creative uh, trial designs that we can use. And actually, next week, I'm going to a state of the science at the NIH that is for hemophilia and inhibitors, uh, which Mm -hmm. has gathered not only all of uh, or many of the the leaders in hemophilia treatment, but also has tapped into bioinformatics and people who understand large data sets and um, research design experts who Mm -hmm. can help us think about ways to study this rare outcome in a rare disease um, in order to better understand it, and in order to get the most information with a limited patient population.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very, again, what another interesting aspect of, of all of this. Let's, let's get into the last part here. So you're involved with a new study, correct? Tell me a little bit about that.
0: So in order to, so part of this, uh, this effort is to follow patients who have not been treated um, with factor to understand why certain patients get inhibitors so that we can perhaps intervene even before patients ever see factor in order to um in order to prevent them from getting inhibitors uh instead of just waiting for the inhibitor to occur those twenty to thirty percent and and then you know trying to get it to go away. So we have uh developed with the American Thrombosis and Hemostasis Network and um we're one of I'm one of the national PIs along with uh Dr. Courtney Thornburg at uh uh in, in San Diego um the the idea of um a cohort study where we have multiple sites around the United States where we will enroll children with hemophilia at the time of diagnosis before they receive any treatment and collect data on um, events that they have, genetic data, um, treatment data, so that we can hopefully identify some risk factors pre-treatment that we can modify to prevent inhibitor development. And then we'll utilize that same platform to hopefully develop some interventional trials um, to prevent uh, inhibitors in right. the next phase. Of the,
1: That's of the amazing. Training. Any? Do you have any thoughts, any theories on why some people develop these inhibitors?
0: So there are some known risk factors. We know that um, if you have uh, severe hemophilia, if you have less than one percent of factor in your blood, and if you have certain genetic mutations, then you're at higher risk of developing an inhibitor. So people who have very large deletions of the gene have nothing within their body that looks anything like factor eight. And so that puts them at higher risk of developing an inhibitor. And that kind of makes sense. Um, we know that certain ethnicities are at higher risk. So African um, derivation or Hispanic derivation, um, people who have a 50% chance just about of developing an inhibitor if they have severe hemophilia. We don't know why. We don't know what the, why that would be a difference within ethnicities. The rate of hemophilia around the world is about the same, if, if, with the exception of a few small pockets where it's higher because of people who intermarry. Mm-hmm. Um, but, if, but we don't understand why, what influences or what immune influences uh, may be causing those patient populations to develop inhibitors more. There are some there are some evidence that suggests that certain immune um, genes may play a role in someone who's more apt to develop an inhibitor. And there's some really interesting studies looking at the antibodies that develop before the actual inhibitor develops that where um certain antibody switching may predate the um nullifying inhibitor so those Those studies are are pretty fascinating as well yeah, um and whether we could intervene when we found that first antibody that wasn't a neutralizing antibody um to try to prevent that that clinically significant antibody from forming. Um, but then there are other things like uh, certain treatments, uh, so high doses of factor at the time of, uh, of when they first see factor, uh, what we call a danger signal, yeah. that may rev up the immune system. Uh, there may be... Certain, we don't, There was a recent study that said that patients who received plasma-derived factor, which uh, is obviously made from donor plasma may have less of a risk of inhibitor development versus those who receive a recombinant factor product. Um, so there's it's multifactorial, and yeah. there are some thoughts that it may even be, there may even be very, may even be influences of in utero exposures that could predispose a child to develop inhibitors later on. Oh, wow. So oh, doc, it's fascinating. Lots to look work. at. Yeah,
1: fa- fa- listen, I, Dr. Carpenter, it's it's amazing, and I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, and um, it's just uh, it's fascinating, and good luck with all the research, and thank you for coming on the show today. You're listening to Pediatrics in Practice with Children's Mercy Kansas City. For more information, you go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.